I believe that we're going to change society by taking responsibility as individuals and doing something on a local level and supporting solutions. We got to stop blaming the church. We got to stop blaming the government. And at this point, we got to stop blaming one another. And if we can start to work with one another to do something on a local level, that's how we're going to, if we have hundreds of thousands and millions of people that are focused on what am I doing right here in my own community, we're going to move the needle. Hello, beautiful humans and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara and welcome to another episode of Let's Give a Damn. On this show, I have conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. I'm so incredibly glad you showed up today. I really, really am. Thank you for being here. My guest today is a remarkable human. His name is Bob Dalton, and he is the founder of Sackcloth and Ashes, a company that sells blankets but not just any blankets. They're incredible blankets. I mean that. We have two of them at home, and we love them. Sackcloth and Ashes uses the one-for-one model. For every blanket purchased, they donate a blanket to a local homeless shelter. They've already given hundreds of thousands of blankets away. Their mission is to highlight grassroots organizations that are creating solutions for helping people experiencing homelessness. I won't give it away here, but the story about why he started Sackcloth and Ashes is incredible and very personal. Bob and I got to record this in person. I'm so excited to share that. One of the very few in-person interviews from the last 16 months, for obvious reasons. As you know, we just moved to New York four weeks ago today, actually, and Bob texted me that he was coming to New York for some work stuff, so we met up one evening to record this in one of the smallest hotel rooms I've ever been in. Fair warning, we are a few drinks in by the time we got around to recording this, but I'm fairly certain we made coherent and helpful conversation for the most part. Before we get into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the wonderful Bob Dalton. Let's go. I believe everybody has a book inside of them, and here's what I mean by that. Everybody's story is interesting. No matter how boring white vanilla you are your story is interesting because you're a person you have experiences and you have ups and downs and i want to hear that story but so everybody has a book inside of them but i hear you on the when it comes to like inspirational self-help uh you know business books those types we're kind of at a day and age where unless you're a really really good writer like adam grant He writes on like, it's a lot of like self-improvement life stuff. I'll read anything Adam Grant. He's a PhD. He's, he's brilliant. He's fucking brilliant. So brilliant. So when he writes a book, he's a great writer. He's brilliant. Everything in his books, amazing. But a lot of these books, so I don't read a lot of fiction. Fiction is amazing and I need to read more fiction, but I don't read a lot of it. I am inclined toward like learning. I want to learn. So I read a business book. I read, but you're right. Nowadays, they have a platform, they get a book deal, they write a book about whatever their big shtick is, whatever their big thing is, and it's not that good. And 
an eight minute video on YouTube would suffice. Like, so why read the book for nine hours when you could get it in eight minutes? That's the thing I'm working through is like, I love these books. I love the title of the concept, the idea, but should I spend nine hours reading it? Or should I read, go watch their Ted talk, which was 14 minutes, same thing, same content. It's all there. Yeah. And then if I want to read a longer book, go to one of the classics, go to read a book by a dead author, a real author, somebody that had to labor for years to get this book out, you know? Yeah. I mean, the more that I learned about uh, Emerson, you know, Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson, you know, he said that like he would spend an entire morning like laboring over one paragraph. Yeah. And that's, that's where I'm like, you have to, if you want to actually write a piece of content that is like respected as a legitimate piece of writing, you know, it's laborious. Like you got to pour a lot into trying to simplify that down into its least common denominator so that, you know, you're not wasting people's time. And I think that too many people are trying to fill books up with content, but that content is not necessarily um, meaningful. You know what I mean? And half these books today are ghost written. Yeah. So, the, so e e e even if it was, I'd, I'd prefer if it was a mediocre book by an inexperienced author, if it was written in their own words. But half these books, especially in the genres that we're talking about, you know, they get a $1.5 million advance and they pay somebody 400 grand to write it for them. They didn't write it. They spent two days in front of a whiteboard, wrote down all the ideas, the concepts, outlined the chapters, and then some really talented writer that doesn't have a name for themselves writes the book on their behalf. Yeah. Nobody ever knows. Yeah, I, and I'm... I just want to make a commitment right now that I'm not going to be that person because I appreciate that. I, I, I want to come out with one book in the next few years and it's going to be the first 10 years of sackcloth and ashes, my business and its journey. It's going to be, it. it's going to be 10 chapters and it's going to be each chapter will be a year of what that journey was, you know, like, chapter one will be the first year. Like, what was that like as an entrepreneur starting with nothing, you know, year two, year three, year four, you know, and then year 10, it's like, we donated a million blankets to homeless shelters, you know, so to go from nothing to, to doing that, like, I want to give people a, a genuine story that I had to fight to not only create, but then to document, you know, and give people like this inside window of what it's like to be an entrepreneur because being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart. You know, it's, it's right. Being an entrepreneur, there's a lot of high highs and low lows, but like there's so many times in my journey that I get to where I'm like, I don't want to wish that on anybody. You yeah. know, that's how dark it gets at times. And, um, and we just turned seven years, you know, so like chapters, you know, chapter seven, you know, yeah. And I would think it would have gotten easier by now, you know, but it no just way. hasn't. But all that to be said, I I think, you know, I want to fight to get, to write a book. And I've talked to different agents and stuff, and they're always like, well, yeah, like, let's write a, let's crank out a book on concepts that you've learned about business. And I'm like, no, like, 
I want to tell the story. I want to give people the behind the scenes look at what it was actually like to create something like this, because there's only a couple books that I've personally come across that has it have inspired me on an entrepreneurial level. And they kind of like unveil the curtain a little bit, but like, I want to really unveil the curtain, you know, like, and talk about just the crazy, crazy stuff that's happened. I'd read that. And here's why it's, it, it doesn't sound like a book where you're going to present here are the 10 ways to start a social impact for profit business. It's not that. Nobody needs more of that. There's other books out yeah, there. And it's, and it's ever-changing, you know? like Well, yeah, you're not prescribing. You're not saying this is how it is. If you start a business like mine, this is what you're going to go through. You're saying this was my story. This was my hell yeah. and heaven to go through yeah. to get to where we this are. This was my journey. Everybody has their own journey, and it's going to look completely different. They're going to need to do, you know, marketing's rapidly changing. You know, how to start a brand is rapidly changing platforms are rapidly changing how much resources that you start with is drastically different than what i might have started with so there's so many variables that might end up contributing to what you end up starting and what you end up doing and how it ends up going um but the, i just want to share my story because i do think that there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that would be inspired especially that are that are going to be starting something new or wanting to start something new that are going to read this story and go like, wow, like <clears throat> this has been somebody actually fought to make this happen, mm. you know? And, and, um, there's nothing that was necessarily required other than just not giving up mm. throughout the journey, you yeah. know? And, um, and I just, I don't, I don't personally get to read those stories and I want to be able to tell my story to where hopefully it does inspire somebody, you know, and it's not necessarily because I think I'm going to be a good writer, but it's, I'm practicing now getting to the point where I can at least write on my own and I don't have to hire a ghost writer, you know, please don't do that. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So we've, we've talked a bit, we've, we've mentioned the words sackcloth and ashes but a lot of people still don't know what that's about, right? So I want to leave them hanging for a bit. Let's go back to the beginning. Before we get to what you're doing currently, let's go back to the beginning, as far back as you want to go. I want to know where you came from, who are the people, places, and things that have influenced you. Go back as far as you want. Let's start with where you're from. Where are you from? Where do you come from? Yeah, this would be the introduction of the book. Yes. <laughs> um so I grew up in Coos Bay, Oregon. It's a little fisherman town on the Oregon coast. And um, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed growing up there as hard as it was. I grew up without a dad. I had um, my mom, who was a waitress, working her ass off to pay the bills, um, raised my sister and I primarily by herself. You know, she'd have different boyfriends and stuff that would live with us, but she primarily raised us. And, um, I was a street kid, you know, I would roam the streets and try to figure out what life was going to be kind of on my own. And I grew to love that. Like I grew to love, you know, I would walk to school. I would, I would walk everywhere, you know, and I had, I'd have a lot of time to think. And I believe it was those years that helped me develop a really strong mindset and a really, just a really strong mind. Like I got to think and visualize and, 
ask questions and ponder like the meaning of life, you know, and, and why am I here and what, I, what do I want to do and all those kind of things. You know, you have a lot of time to think when you're walking everywhere and you're by yourself most of the time. And so um, my sophomore year in high school, I started going to an organization called Young Life. And it was this kind of, it was this Christian organization gathering, but it wasn't, it didn't feel Christian. It was just like a bunch of your homies went and you had fun. And at the end, this guy would share like 15 minutes about Jesus. Well, what was crazy about that was the guy that would lead Young Life, his name was Todd Tardy. And Todd was the first male figure in my life that casted a vision for who I wanted to be in the world. He was probably mid thirties, early forties at the time, shredded, badass dude, would go to our games, would hang out with us after school. Um, he never felt like he had a religious agenda with us, you know? Um, but he loved God, loved his family, loved his community loved us. He'd have us over to his house for dinner. He, he was the guy. These are the examples that I give of how he made an impact on me. Mm. He was the guy that would, um, have breakfast with us guys and or like Friday mornings. And he would go like, when you walk into a door and there's somebody behind you, you hold the door open for them because you're a servant. You serve people. You love people. And from that moment on, I don't think I've ever walked into a door without looking behind mm. me. He was the first one that sat across from me at a coffee shop and told me, you're a leader. And he was the first person that gave me an opportunity to speak on a stage in front of people. Very monumental times in my life as a young man who didn't exactly know what I wanted to do in the world, but now I have this glimpse of like who I wanted to be like. And at 19 years old, I moved to the Willamette Valley in Oregon. It's about three hours away from where I grew up. And there was no young life in that area. And I decided because young life had made such a huge impact on me, I'm going to start young life. And so for five years, I started young life in that area and that's where I really learned a lot of my entrepreneurial skills. I learned how to build a team, form a committee, you know, lead people on a mission bigger than themselves. We'd go into the high school and build relationships with kids. And um, those are really powerful times in my life. I got to start something out of, out of nothing, you know. And there was many times where I'd be standing under the night sky and be like, God, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm willing. You know, I'm just going to move forward trust that this is what I'm supposed to do. And things started working out. And I got to experience some really, really powerful stuff. And by 24 years old, I was tired of being in the nonprofit world. I spent about 50% of my time fundraising. And so I was like, I want to keep making an impact in the world, but I didn't want to spend a lot of my time asking people for stuff. I wanted to become self-sufficient, you know? And um, I started applying for jobs and nobody was getting back to me. And at the same time, my mom ended up going through a series of events where she had lost a couple close family members and she ended up trying to start her life over. And through that process, 
found herself living on the streets. Mm. And with me applying for jobs, nobody's getting back to me. My mom ended up on the streets. I was trying to figure out what to do. I'm 24 years old trying to figure out what my purpose is in life. And yeah, and that's, I found myself in a really unique place in my life that ended up changing the trajectory of what I'm, what I'm doing. Yeah, totally. Before we get to sackcloth and ashes and that like huge pivot in your life, do you ever keep up with Todd? Do you know where Todd is? I mean, that was what, like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. So Todd is still in Coos Bay building relationships with kids. It's amazing. I love that. He dedicated his whole life and his son, Jordan, um, I basically grew up with him. I was like a senior when he was a sophomore. You know, I drove him to his freshman prom and stuff. So Jordan is now my business partner and and um That's you know, ridiculous. Yeah, I mean and then that's so cool. And then Todd's Todd has three sons and all three sons work for my company. Stop. Yeah. So we're like Todd changed your life. Yeah, Todd changed my life. And now I get to be a part of just being a part of his family and and building off of what he's built, you know, and he knows how much of an impact that he's made on me. And when I was in Young Life, Young Life is this global organization, right? And Todd, I always wondered, like, Todd is a legend in my book. And I knew I was biased, but I was also like, no, Todd is unique. Like, I've seen other Young Life areas. I've seen other leaders in my life. And up to, you know, up till 30, really. Um, up till 30 years old, I, I was like, damn, Todd is a legend, you know? Like, who commits themselves to one mission for a long period of time and making that much of an impact, specifically in the lives of kids? You know, it's a hard thing to commit to. Yeah. And um, and I was a result of that. And I and so I knew the power of what Todd was doing and the fact that Todd's still doing that is so crazy. Well, I ended up getting reached out to by the Young Life like global team, and they asked me to speak at their Young Life uh, all-staff conference that they only do every four years at Disney World Resort. And it's where the, every Young Life staff gets together and and, you know, they have this powerful conference and they asked me to give a message and participate in the event and so i was the last speaker out of all the speakers for the entire weekend and todd was there of course like he's on staff still and i went up and i gave my story and i gave my background of young life and i finished with and I always was like, how does every single person in Young Life not know about Todd? Todd is a freaking legend. He's been around for 30 years or whatever. Yeah. And so I stood up and I was like, I'm standing up here, not as a Young Life committee person, not as a Young Life leader, but I am that kid. Like I am that kid that you guys are showing up in the lives every single day and, and spending time with and, and investing in. Like I am that kid. And I want Todd Tardy, I want you to stand up right now. And Todd stands up and the whole 6,000 people, dude, just, ah, just lose it. And uh, it was just a powerful moment that I could honor Todd and he could see the amount of impact that he's made on me. And I was like, you know, I always 
it was like I visualized that into existence. I always wanted everybody to know who Todd was, you yeah. know, and then they did. I feel like people like you and me have, we have these really big dreams. We're going to do big things, right? We talked for the last couple hours before the podcast even started about these TV shows and these things that we're conceptualizing and envisioning and we're bringing to reality. And I love that for you and me. I love that we're trying to do this thing and hopefully we'll accomplish all of our dreams and then some. It's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. But but I I admire, I admire the hell out of the Todds who seemingly don't aspire to that. They aspire to be in one place, Coos Bay, Oregon, like middle of nowhere, just impacting lives, just being there, just showing up day after day, coffee shops, meals. That's so, I mean, that's huge part of giving a damn is like, maybe you have these big aspirations. Maybe you want to build these huge organizations and do a TV show and this and that and the other. Or maybe you don't care that no one ever knows who you are except the 10, 15, 20 people that you pour yourself into each and every day, week, month, year. Yeah, like who's in front of you, you know? And that that's the way Todd lives. Like <clears throat> to almost a point where it could offend you if you don't know Todd because he'll invest into you for four years straight. And then when you leave Coos Bay, you won't get a call from him. And you feel bummed about it like you're like what man i can't believe like todd made such a intentional impact on me you know todd doesn't reach out you move on you grow up you're a man now right hmm. todd is now investing into the people that's right in front of him again and like shifts his focus and he's just serving consistently his community and the kids and he's an invest he's investing into the kids and I don't think there's a better investment because kids are the future, you know? <clears throat> I can honestly say I'm not doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for Todd Tardy. I really, truly believe that. And and he knows that, and I've shared that with him. And it's and, and Jordan feels the same way, my business partner, his son, you know? Todd made an impact on him. And now we get to do the work we're doing, you know, together with you know because of Todd I think it's super important for us to no matter what circumstance we're in no matter what our background is future is to really spend time assessing and recognizing and showing gratitude for and telling them about it as well not just showing gratitude in our personal space but telling them about it the people that have made us who we are one of my least favorite things in the world is this idea of self-made anything, anything, no matter what you've built, you didn't self-make it. There were a thousand people, hundred people, whatever the number is, there were lots of people that did X, Y, or Z for you. They're the reason you're doing what you're doing today. Sure. You still have this unique gift and skill set that is allowing you to run a really incredible business and you know create this, this new video content that you're working, all that stuff. Totally, that's you, that's you and your vision. 
but who are the hundred people besides Todd that we got to recognize that. And it's not a bad thing to do that. It's not a bad thing to look and say, who are, who's the room full of people that helped me be who I am today? This it's very humbling and it's very integrity filled to recognize that so that we can also recognize that we're doing that for other people right now. Like it's a whole, it's a whole fucking like circle of life, right? Yeah. I mean, every father's day I, I text or call three men, you know, I, and my father, he, he, he had passed away, um, when I was 19, but you know, on father's day now I'm like, I'm hitting up the Todd's, you know, and there's three specific people that have really made an impact on me from a father standpoint, you know, people that men that I've looked up to that I'm like, man, like they're doing some incredible work in the world, you know? And, and that's what helps drive me, you know, um, and help give just at least at minimum cast a vision for me, you know? Cause when you're, you're when you're a young guy and you're, you're hungry and you're looking for people to be inspired by and, and you know, kind of feed off of, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's not typically the celebrity or the big name that really, I look back on my life and be like, yeah, they made a really big impact on me. It was the men that were just simply in my life and doing life with me and had the ability to call me out on my shit. And that, that, those were the moments where I was like, man, like those are the moments that cut deep um, and helped me mature into a man, you know, is the men who had the ability to call me out. Um, yeah. So no one is getting back to you about a job. Your mom is homeless. Talk through that season because it is out of this like really tough season in your family life that you create something that is still very living and breathing today and still growing. So how did sackcloth and ashes come out of that season of life? Yeah. So I used to be the guy who would judge people on the street and I would drive by folks on the street, whisper under my breath. I actually remember, a, and I always say that as an example, but I remember a specific time that I drove by somebody on the street that was holding a sign and I actually whispered under my breath and I caught myself and I said, go get a job. Mm. That. That's heavy. Yeah. I mean, that was my perception of homelessness. Yep. And so for my mom to go through a series of events and then end up sleeping on beaches and benches, like, and I try to, you know, extend help. And it was just a crazy season. I mean, I was 24. I was in a transition. My mom was like, I'm on my own journey, you know. I didn't know what to do. And I started calling local homeless shelters and being like, hey, what do you guys need? That was the only thing I could think of. I'm like, I'm, I got to do something at least. You know, so I just started hitting up shelters and being like, hey, what do you guys need? And they're like, we need blankets. Mm -hmm. I was I was familiar with Tom's one for one model. Warby Parker had picked it up. Both of them at that time in 2014 were billion dollar companies. So I'm like, yeah. I'm like, it works. Yeah. You know, it's a business model that's successful. I could just start a nonprofit and raise money and donate blankets. 
but that doesn't seem creative or long-term sustainable for what I ultimately wanted to do. You know, I'd rather invite people into it. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to start a blanket company. And I'm, for every blanket I sell, I'm going to donate a blanket to that person's local homeless shelter. And I wanted to make the one-for-one model unique in that when you buy Tom's shoes or Warby Parker or whatever, I don't know where those second pair of glasses or shoes go to. And maybe I haven't watched enough videos, but... It's not easy to find, that's for sure. Yeah. I've done the research. It, it should be easier to figure out where your that second pair, that second pair yeah. of whatever is going. And it doesn't, I'm, you know, and it not to specifically who the person is or anything like that, but just more of like, I don't, like it's good and it, the model was awesome. The Tom's provide, I mean, I'm still here, companies, nonprofits that are receiving, you know, shoes and stuff like that. I mean, they they did incredible work in that season and still are they shifted their model away from the one for one, but they're still doing really good work, giving money to grassroots organizations. Um, I don't, I don't exactly know what Warby Parker is doing, but I just knew homelessness around the United States was like, it's everywhere. You know, there's homeless shelters everywhere. So I was like, yeah, you and I are in New York city right now where I live and you're visiting. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't walk 20 feet without running into someone that is houseless, mm-hmm. that doesn't have a home. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Yeah. So it's it's in our backyard, yeah. you know, and that was kind of my thought process when I was starting a one-for-one business. I was like, what if I sold a blanket and then I donated a blanket to that person's local homeless shelter and I really localized the one-for-one model and gave you as a buyer an opportunity to make a difference down the street from where you live. So I started doing research and like found... 500 plus homeless shelters in the United States that reached most of the population that I would sell to. And from that point on, drove down to Joanne's Fabric and bought a sewing machine and a roll of fabric and tried to learn how to sew and realized I'm horrible at sewing. Found Tammy in my community. Tammy was this local seamstress who would, you know, was like mending dresses and jeans but she knew how to sew. And I said, hey, Tammy, I don't know how to sew. Trying to start a blanket company. Would you be willing to make me blankets? And she said, yeah, I'm actually already quilting blankets and keeping them in my car to give to people on the streets. And I'm like, wow, perfect. She's already got the heart for it. Yeah, I'm already feeling it. Hired. You're my first hire, Tammy. So Tammy started making me blankets, boxed them up, put them in my trunk, Started driving up and down the Oregon coast, walking into shops. I had no clue how to do wholesale. I didn't even know what wholesale was. Right. But I would just walk into shops with a box of blankets and be like, hey, do you guys want to buy these blankets? And for every blanket you buy, I'm going to donate a blanket to your local homeless shelter out of my trunk. And like the looks that people would give me are like, are you, like, are you serious? This person's crazy. You know, and I got out, I got into about one out of every 10 to 20 shops. You know, somebody felt bad for me enough to buy blankets. So these blankets are, let's go from present day backward. They're super high quality. You gave me one and we have another one. So we have two that we keep on our couch. Yeah. They're the most comfortable blankets. 
Were they always that way? What was the first, like, what was V1 of the blankets? Were they like they are today? No. Or how did it start out? Like, what did they look like? What did they feel like? Yeah, literally, V1 was black fleece fabric from Joanne's fabric. Just straight black. That was it, dude. Like, the, the first blanket ever made, I made, kind of. Like, I have it. It's like strings coming off it and shit. But, like... You still have the very first one? I have the very first That's one. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, but what was unique about the blankets was the logos. That, that's what was unique. I would screen print our logo onto muslin. And muslin's like another type of fabric that I would yep. get from Joann's. I'd buy bolts of fabric. Screen print our logo on them by the hundreds. Cut the logos out. Have Tammy sew the logos on the black fleece blankets. And then I'd hand fray every single logo. And then I'd put fray check around it. And so it was like anybody who has those original logos, they're like, you know, a ruler long. But like they were like badass and they were like the OG sackcloth and ashes blanket. So if you have a sackcloth and ashes blanket with that logo, that's like the OG version hand frayed, you know. But even though it was on a black fleece, that's how I made the blankets somewhat unique was it wasn't just like this black fleece it was this black fleece with this sick logo on it and it had like it was frayed you know so that was the first blanket and the first blankets i started buying i was like i can't keep buying fabric from joann's it's too expensive yeah you're not getting it wholesale you're getting it at the price that everybody gets yeah so i started buying fabric from fashionfabrics.com and they're just this like I just Googled buy fabric, you know, and then it was like fashionfabrics.com and I just started selecting fabrics and I started having fabric sent to my house. So then fabric starts getting sent to my house and Tammy starts making even more blankets. And by then I'm like picking fabrics and getting really into it. You know, my wife thought I was losing my mind. Like she's like, you're draining our savings account and you're buying fabric online and you're shipping fabric to our house. You know, like every time I get a roll of fabric at our house, I throw a party. You know what I mean? I'll, pack it in, throw it up on the bed, cut it open. And I was just like the new fabric, you know, hundreds and hundreds, your wife's seeing hundreds and hundreds of dollars sitting on the bed. Oh, I mean, it was, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she was literally like, you're starting a blanket company. You're buying rolls of fabric and shipping to our house. So I was walking into shops and one of the shops that I walked into was a anthropology which is like a women's boutique, yeah. national brand. Pretty well known. Yeah. Owned by Urban Outfitters. I didn't know how wholesale works. So I'm walking to shops. I'm like, hey, do you guys, I'm like, I have a box of literally like a craft box of blankets. I'm like, hey, do you guys want to buy blankets? And they're like, uh, that's not how it works. Yeah. They're like, you're weird. You know, I'm like, okay, well, here's my card. Make sure it gets to the manager for every blanket that I sell. I donate a blanket to a homeless shelter. I get an email 30 days after I launched my website. I launched my first website June 1st, 2014, sackcloth and, and so 24 is when you couldn't find work. Your mom's homeless. How old are you now? 25, 26? Yeah. Tw- yeah. No, I mean, yeah, like 24, 25. Yeah. You know, like I'm still, I'm. this is fresh. Yeah. I walk in her uh, anthro. I get an email 30 days into launching my website from anthropology and they're like we want 8,000 blankets shit 
And I'm like, I don't have 8,000. I, I like call Tammy up. Tammy, how many blankets do we got? She's like, we got 80. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, Tammy, I need you to sew as You need to step it up, Tammy. Yeah. Tammy, sew more, you know? And I every time I'd go to her house, you know, she'd be watching like Days of Our Lives and, you know. It's just you and Tammy at this point. Yeah. Then Jordan, Todd's son, just got hired as a manager at his job, got full health benefits. And I called Jordan up and I go, Jordan, I need you to quit your job and I need you to fray blankets and stand in line at USPS and do this blanket company with me. This is about 60 days in. So Jordan quits his job on the dime and just comes and joins me. I love this. And just starts grinding. Like Jordan's the hardest working person I know. Like full grinding, fraying blankets till wee hours of the night. Standing in line, handwriting shipping labels, shipping blankets out. So that took a lot of pressure off me because I was doing that. And so Jordan takes over all of the operations. <laughs> and Tammy starts making blankets. We get an order from Anthropology for 8000 We were able to make about 800 And we we're like, wow, damn, proof of concept. You know, like that's a big deal. Like our blankets literally showed up on Anthropology's website and social media. They pay you up front. Or how did that work? For I, that don't even, do, I don't even. I don't even. I don't even. I just yeah. remember just being like, "Damn!" Like yeah. anthropology wants our blankets. thousand blankets. Yeah. So like, there's potential here. So then, I speak at a small little conference of about 200 people in November of 2014. This is five months into it, and I just gave my normal story. You know, starting a blanket company. Mom was on the streets. I'm donating a blanket to a homeless shelter. or Whatever. I got a booth in the back. If you guys want to buy a blanket from me, come get a blanket. You know, I go to the booth waiting for people to show up. First guy that shows up, he goes, Hey man, love what you're doing. Here's my card. I'm the head of North America for Instagram. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. I take his card, pocket it, lose it. I'm selling a blanket. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh my God, I'm making a sale. So I sell a blanket. Stoked about it. Maybe sell a couple more. A couple weeks later, I get an email from him. Hey, Bob, this is Jeffrey from Instagram. Your blanket has a special place on my couch. I pitched your story to our team. I think we're going to get you featured on Instagram's Instagram account. And I'm like, I didn't even know what that meant. I called my buddy Cody up. Yo, man, what's up? Like this is early days. Yeah, it's like bottom of the wave. Yeah. You know, I'm like, yo, dude, I think Instagram just hit me up, and they're like wanting to feed posts about us on their Instagram account to 42 million people. And he's like, you need to get back to them right now. Like, hang up the phone and get back to them. So I emailed Jeffrey back, and I go, Jeffrey, thank you so much for this opportunity. You know, me and my team, me being. Jordan and Tammy. My huge team. My Me, massive team. Yeah, I talked with my team and and I yeah. have uh I have can you know got their advice on this opportunity on the, whether the or not the board has voted that yeah, we should yeah. approve of this. And we have agreed yeah. and we were just wondering how long until we have until you post about us to 42 million people. And they're like we're we're going to we're going to post about you tomorrow and it's the day before Black Friday. So our story went out to 42 million people. I remember the moment where I was at, like they post about us 
and like I'm refreshing my account and I'm getting like 100 followers, 100 followers, 100 followers, 100 followers for like hours. And people from around the world would message us and say like, we love the work you're doing. And there was no influencers at the time. There was just random, right. random photographers who had hundreds of thousands of followers. A lot of them thinking that they were really cool, but they just, whatever. But they would reach out to us and be like, hey, uh, we want to work with Sackcloth, you know? And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I'm starting to see the power of social media. I'm like, oh my God, we're like we're selling out of blankets, you know? So I started sending blankets to people around the world that are taking photos and like they're not only are they sending me dope photos, but like they're posting about them through their feed and we're growing rapidly. So we're growing like 500 followers a day for a couple years straight. Crazy. And we just were one of the first brands that started doing quote unquote influencer marketing, but we didn't know that what we didn't know that's what we were doing at the time. We were just working with people that had following and I'm looking at, the reality of people are just on their phones. Like, right. This is the new form of television, you know? So I just looked at that practically. So for the first four years of sackcloth and ashes, a hundred percent of our sales were online, direct to consumer. 90% of our sales were through Instagram. That's crazy. <laughs> we're doing over What's his name. Jeffrey. Yeah. You owe Jeffrey. Jeffrey's, no, I do. Jeffrey's I, another Todd, right? Shout, Todd shout out Jeffrey. to shout out, shout out to Jeffrey Gearson, man. Like he was an Instagram legend. He's not there anymore, but wait, I know this Jeffrey because I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know him, know him. Yeah, but Jeffrey <laughs> was legend, at man. this event that I was at in L.A. Yeah, that's what he did, man. He go to events. he go to all these events with all these like yeah. He, I mean, he was the one that kind of he was kind of like curating like what influencers were. Like I probably have 10 friends that owe their career to Jeffrey. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> because he said, I love what you're doing. I love the shit that you're making. Let me highlight you. Yeah. And their account blew up. And now they're, yeah. you know, have hundreds of thousands of followers and can pitch whatever they're doing. Yeah, no, he's a man. And he he just believed, what I loved about him was he believed in storytelling. He's a storyteller. I don't remember what company he's at now, but... Um, but yeah, man, shout out to Jeffrey Gearson, man. Shout out to man. Jeffrey Gearson, man. That was a big part of our story, man. And uh, it made me really be a believer in Instagram at that time. And that was a big part of our journey and our, and our you know, where now we have over 300,000 followers on Instagram or whatever. But like, I can't, like our account's not growing anymore, like rapidly sure. like that. Algorithms have changed. Influencer marketing has changed. Yeah. God, Damn, it's expensive. Yeah. Now you have to pay an arm and a leg just to get somebody to to utter the words oh, sat. Oh, dude. Part it's of your it's crazy. And yeah. Well, I can't imagine being a somebody who's starting a product company now. Yeah. You know, and, you know, much respect if you do. And I'll help you in any way I can. You know what I mean? But um, it's just a different game. Times have changed from seven years ago. So where did the the name is kind of interesting? I mean, I know where it comes from, but like, yeah, where did the name come from? How did that come about? Yeah, I was prior to starting the brand, I was reading the Jewish Book of Wisdom, and I highly recommend it. It's just filled with stories and parables. Um, and it was just a season where I was just cranking through different books and 
I was collecting names that I, any name that I would come across, I thought was intriguing. I'd put it into my phone because I was an inspiring entrepreneur. And it was like all the names I would start all of my businesses one day, you know? Um, I kept similar notes. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And uh, Sackcloth and Ashes was amongst the list. And when I launched the brand, I just felt like that was the most appropriate name out of all the names. Sackcloth and Ashes means mourning and repentance. Yep. And so the concept of it was for me was that every time I wrap myself in a sackcloth and ashes blanket, it symbolizes mourning over the homeless population and repentance by contributing to a shelter in my area. And the whole journey of sackcloth and ashes still today, seven years in, is a journey of repentance for me, trying to change my bias and understanding of how I view the homeless community. And I still struggle with my bias. You know, I it's I mean, it's not like I just drive by people on the street and I'm like, um, you know, have this overwhelming amount of compassion. Like I still have bias and judgment. And so sackcloth and ashes for me is that reminder of that I'm on this learning journey of trying to change my ways and my perspective and my, you know, my thought process. And I have evolved and I have, um, even in my, my language, the reframing of a lot of my language has evolved. You know, I used to call them homeless people. Now they're people that are homeless. Um, you know, yeah, they're not defined. That is not the defining. Yeah thing of their lives yeah no, they yeah. are experiencing it right now yeah, they're experiencing homelessness but they're people you know um princeton did a study where when we drive by people on the street we process them as objects yeah and that stuck with me um but i'm on this journey journey of uh, of learning and trying to change my own personal ways i'm, I'm repenting and that's I, what the name represented for me. And it was it was religious, but it was mysterious enough to where I felt like it could work. Yeah, there's religious connotations to it. Obviously, it comes from Jewish scripture and scripture in general. But everybody can understand that. Everybody can understand that. If I if I yeah, present this concept of there's like when people wanted to truly mourn something that was going on and repent of it and turn away from it, they covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes, and they truly wanted a huge monumental change in their lives. Everybody can identify with that. To pair that with people who are experiencing homelessness, he here's the thing. I don't know the exact number, but I, I read the other day. I don't know, again, I know the number that I read, but I don't know if it's exact. The general idea is that we could fix homelessness in our country, our country being the United States of America for, and again, I don't know what fix means. Got to I got to dive into this deeper, but it's some, it's some pretty low figure, like $25 billion and we could eradicate homelessness in the U S the fact that there are hundreds of billionaires in the U S some that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Some that I don't have to name because people already know who they are that are in a race to get to Mars, right? We're trying to race to get off the planet when we haven't fixed the one we live on. That is something worth repenting of. 
that is something worth wrap. I mean, seriously, I love that analogy of like, when I put this blanket around me, I need to really think and feel the weight of, there are people tonight, we live in the richest fucking country in the history of ever. And yet there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that will sleep on the streets tonight. That is a travesty. And I don't know how to fix it. I'm not claiming to know how to fix it. You're making an attempt at relieving the suffering short term and trying to figure out how to fi fix this long term. I don't know how to fix it, but it's worth stopping and saying, what the hell are we doing? Yeah, I mean, what that what you're saying is that money cannot necessarily solve problems. Right. That's not what's going to solve problems in society. It's not going to be cutting the check. What's going to solve society's problems, or at least what's going to start the motion of solving society's problems is the shifting of our mindset and having compassion on people, understanding that people are people. You know, and I think that when we're living in a culture like similar to what we are right now in a culture of division, culture of labels, like we live in a, we live in a culture of labels where we're, we're a label first society. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or it's a homeless person or it's a foster kid, you know, it's an elderly person. We live in a label first society and when we can reverse that thinking and they're a kid who is experiencing you know foster care yeah um they're a person who's experiencing homelessness i am a person who is democrat i am a person who has republican views you know it creates uh your ability to be able to connect in our similarities rather than disconnect in our differences and i think that's the beginning of setting in motion the opportunity to change legitimate issues in society, no matter what issue it is. And um, without that kind of com compassion and the ability to connect with one another, we don't have the ability, no matter how much money we have, to solve those problems. And there's a level of dignity that's missing, you know? Um, and so that's helped shaped a lot of my work. You know, I'm like, if I could help people think differently about people on the street, then that's at least a start to potentially creating some sort of an action in them that's going to lead to some progress. Um, I know the blankets are these symbolisms, you know. I know that providing blankets to people on the street in, in the United States is not the 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 solution, you know, it might be a, a short-term practical need, you know, and that's, that's good. But the blankets themselves are what I call a third party object. That's connecting me to an, an audience that's buying the blankets. It's connecting me to corporations that are buying the blankets. It's connecting me to celebrities that we're partnered with. And the blankets are also connecting me with homeless shelters around the United States and people that are experiencing homelessness. So these blankets are like this third-party object that's connecting me with thousands of people. And when there's a blanket that's on your couch or on your bed as this 
symbol of what it represents. Um, I have personal friends and mentors that I go, hey man, like this has changed the way I think about people on the street. I can't walk by somebody on the street anymore and ignore that. I can't block that out anymore. And it's because, you know, your product's in my home every day. I'm looking at it. I'm staring at it. I'm wrapping myself in it. And so, you know, that to me, that was like the start. Sackcloth and Ashes is the start of a conversation that's hopefully breaking down barriers that are existing in our minds that are, are helping us have a little bit more compassion toward people on the street, you know? I know that having two blankets in our home has shifted the way we think about this. Because again, we have to look at it all the time. We have four blankets that are in our living room, two that are sackcloth and ashes, and two that my mother-in-law gave me. Shout out to my mother-in-law. I don't know what store she got them at. <laughs> they have no significance. They're comfy, but it's just a blanket. Yeah, just shout, a fucking blanket. Shout out to Target. Yeah, shout, <laughs> yeah, shout out shout to Walmart out to those or Target. Ultra cuddle fleeces, man. But then you look at the you look at the sackcloth, and not only is it, you know, a favorite blanket because it's really super comfy. These are really well made. But it's like, yeah, you can't disconnect from the story there. You know, one of my one of the least favorite things because we've always lived in cities. Now we live in a city, city in New York. But even when we lived in Nashville, a lot of homeless people, a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness. And one of my least favorite things about the pandemic, other than worldwide catastrophe and so many horrible deaths and all of that stuff. One of my least favorite things was having to wear a mask around people who are experiencing homelessness because before the pandemic, even if I couldn't give anything to them, I wanted to make eye contact with them and smile. I wanted them to know that I wasn't ignoring them because I didn't have money to give them or whatever. I hated that. I hated that when I would walk down the street, I couldn't, and it's still, I still, even in New York City, like when I'm out and about, usually in my neighborhood, I have a mask on. It's very busy streets. I still hate it that we're not at the place where we can do that. I'm longing to get back to, or forward to a new normal where we can get back to that because that is such a, these, I imagine being in their position where everybody around them is just trying, like finding every way possible to ignore them because they don't have the money or whatever. And instead of acknowledging, you know, you're, I can't give you a dollar or $5 right now, but I am acknowledging you. We're connecting. I see your humanity. I'm sorry for what's happening. I truly hope this ends for you soon. That all can be communicated through a smile, a direct stare right into their eyes, right? Um. I hope that can change soon because I miss doing that. I miss connecting with people in that way. Um, again, not the solution. I can't fix their problems with a smile and eye contact, but it's really hard to do that behind a mask, you know? Yeah, and you're definitely not going to come up with any creative ideas to help the problem or participate in any solutions if you're not willing to smile or or see them, you know? Yeah. So that's why I think it is the a start um like if you have nothing to give to someone you know at minimum look them in the eyes and acknowledge them as a yeah. human being and that's it um and not expect anything in return yeah you know 
So what are the what are the numbers look like? You've been around for a few years, just crushing it, trying to make this happen. I know you guys have a really big, massive goal. So what is that goal? Where are you at in that goal? And and what are sort of the um, what are the plans? What are the dreams for making that happen? Yeah. So in 2018, we launched our first major campaign called Blanket the United States, and our goal is to donate a million blankets to shelters by 2024. That opened up the door for us to work with companies that want to give blankets as gifts to employees or customers. And right out the gate, we partnered with Subaru in Oregon. And they bought 2,500 blankets. And for every Subaru they sold, they give a blanket as a gift. And we donated 2,500 blankets to shelters in Oregon. Then a company bought 5,000. Then a company buys 10,000. You know, Amazing. So now you have companies all around the U.S. that are buying blankets by the thousands that are giving as gifts to employees or customers. Um, we, in the month of April 2021, we locked in three new national partnerships. Um, one of them is with KB Home. They're a national home builder. And starting in July, every blanket or every home that's purchased or every home that's built by them. They have a blanket in the... They give a blanket as a gift. Every single home they build in the United States. They said, this is the first thing as a publicly traded company. This is the first thing that their entire company has collectively agreed on um, in regards to a closing gift is the blankets. And so we're going to be able to provide at at a minimum 10,000 blankets to homeless shelters and that's like the start. This is a test trial. This is a beta test with KB Home. So great company. They got the deal done incredibly fast. And shout out to them. They have an amazing team. We partnered with Churchill Mortgage. Every mortgage they do in the United States, they give a blanket as a gift. They bought 20,000 blankets. Amazing. Um, the other company we just partnered, signed a deal with is uh, REI. So every huge, yeah, every REI in the nation starting this fall is going to have the blankets in the stores. In the stores, and every blanket you purchase, it's going to come with a free leather blanket roll. And um, that's the only place that we're going to offer that. And then, um, yeah, and then we have another national partnership that I can't talk about yet, but it's uh, launching on November first incredible it's it i would argue our best collection that we've created so far and um it's with a global brand and it's it's gonna it's gonna do amazing so sackcloth and ashes is ramping up we're doing about fourteen thousand blankets a month in production um and we're looking at making our next jump which is about twenty one thousand blankets a month here in the next six months. So you started with one seamstress. God bless her. Yep. Tammy, shout out to Tammy. Tammy. What does that look like now? How many is that? So now we make our fabric in Florence, Italy. I found a great manufacturer over there. Florence, Italy, actually, at one point, they made 80% of the fabric in the world. And Weird. Why is that? <clears throat> um just a part of the world. Yeah, I mean, they were just big time. Is it wool? What is the, what is? The- it's a wool blend. Yeah, and they made eighty percent of the fabric in the world. And they their slogan was, "We put the shirt on your back." Hmm. At one point, over the years, um, China started taking a lot of their their business, and 
so now they have like these awesome giant factories and jack hard looms. They're ready to rock. So I went over there a couple years ago and I told them, you know, we're going to be the Nike of blankets and I need you to be making a hundred thousand blankets a month. Or I need you to at least work up. To, can you yeah. make a hundred thousand blankets a month or a year even, you know? And they were like, yeah, we can build up to that. It's going to be, a, a, it's got to be scalable. You know, it's got to be done in, in increments. So that's where we're at. We're doing 14,000 blankets a month and the fabric gets shipped. The fabric's made from 100% recycled material. So literally t-shirts and sweatshirts get put into a grinder, grind it up and then turned into yarn. And then the yarn gets made, our blankets are made out of that yarn. So like it's, it's pretty fascinating process. We're going to film it. Um, in the, in its entirety in, um, September of this year, we're going to go over to Italy and, and film our entire back end of the process. So you, people can see every single, you know, every part of our entire process of making the blanket and shipping the blanket and donating the blanket. Like we believe everything matters. And, um, so we'll film that the fabric gets shipped to our production hub in Oregon. And that's where we produce the blankets. We cut the blankets, sew the blankets, sewing the labels, everything. We hire um, refugees to uh, do a lot of the sewing. So we work with an incredible refugee program where we're going to be hiring more and more refugees um, that are some of our best team members. I mean, they're making this thing happen, you know. And we have a beautiful facility in Oregon, do all of our fulfillment in-house, and consistently striving to be a six, a very efficient company and, and have our customers in mind. You know, we want to do what's right at the end of the day. Um, in the next five years, I want to buy Pendleton's mills. And I think that just like other companies in the United States that have been making fabric, they're going to be starting to move more and more production overseas. Yeah. You know, if you go into any Pendleton store, they, most of their products are made in other countries. Um, and so I would like to be in a position within the next five years to buy their, their mills in Oregon. I love it. I love it so much. So let's, let's wind down with this. Um, I could talk to you all night about this stuff, but it's late. We're a few drinks in. Something that I loved about our conversation earlier over drinks was you said this thing that I want to bring up. And let's let's talk about this because I I, I sense this in your spirit. Like your spirit is super um it's it's very aligned with mine, but also like very different. And I'm, I've learned a lot from you even over the last few hours. You said a couple hours ago. Like we need a, some version of, we shouldn't be striving to be right. We should strive to do the right thing. Those are so vastly different, but we're all trying to be right. We all wanna be right. Mostly because most of our battles now are fought on social media and not in real life because it's so, it's. Not to say that it couldn't happen here, you and me in the same hotel room, but it's so much harder to do that here 
because I'm, I'm, I, I can see you. I see your body language. You're not defensive. We're just chilling, right? But on social media, I can't see any of that. And I'm just like, fuck you, Bob. You're wrong. This, that. I'm right. Here's my data. Here's my study. But where does that get us? When you said we shouldn't strive to be right, we should strive to do right, do the right thing. You know, I gave you the aspirate, like what let's give a damn is aspiring to do, which is to build fewer walls, longer bridges, bigger tables. Mm-hmm. You've lived in the same America that I have, the United States of America, rather. I'm trying to be clear about that. America is a an entire continent, not just our country. We're very we're very prideful and presumptuous to just call who we are America. Mm-hmm. We are the United States of America. Mm-hmm. We live in the same country. And um, I've enjoyed hearing your perspective over the last few hours about how to approach things, how, how, we, how, we win more ba- how we win more of the battles and how we win more people over, not to our side, but just like, let's talk about these issues and let's, let's move forward on these issues rather than just like pound each other into the ground. So how do we, you've experienced a lot over the last few years. You've met a lot of incredible people. You've partnered with a lot of great companies. We've had a really tumultuous five years for obvious reasons, politically, societally, culturally, it's been a complete and utter shit show. Mm-hmm. It's been really hard. And then the cherry on top of that horrible ice cream sundae was this pandemic in the last year of our former president's like, you know, term. It's just just really hard few years. I'm not interested in winning battles. I might seem like that to people online because I'm very like aggressive and very very loud, very bombastic at times. I'm not interested in winning battles. I just want to do the right thing. So how do we do that though? As a more tempered version of me, you, as someone who I think, yeah, has an edge on me in that in that way. Like people listening to this podcast are all over the world, but the majority are in North America. How do we move forward? How do we, if we're trying to fix things like people who are experiencing homelessness, whatever the big issue is, we're not going to fix it by trying to be right, assuming we're right, and trying to do everything possible to pound the other side down so that we can feel better about ourselves. As you've grown and matured and learned a ton over the last six, seven years building this company, how do we move forward? The two biggest things that I've learned in my journey in the last seven years is number one, the power of focusing on local. Like what's going on right here in my local community. And the second thing is the power of focusing on solutions. Because we live in such a time where The media is filled with fear-based, issue-focused content and people calling people out for all the things they're doing wrong. Mm. And if we focused our energies 
on what is going on in our lives right here and focusing on solutions, what's working, and how can we support that. That's how we're going to move the needle. And so in my next season of life, those are the things that I'm going to be focusing on is how can I create something that's giving people an opportunity to make a difference in their local community? And how can we be telling the stories of people that have been doing these solutions for a really long time? Mm. What do we have to learn from them? Um, not only does that inspire people, but it gives people the ability to learn from what's working. And we don't have that enough. And I feel like if there's anything that I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to, and I'm, I've become, I'm 32 years old and I know I'm considered young still or whatever, but in the long, in my short life that I'll live, I know that I could be halfway through my life. You know, you could be ninety five percent of the way through. I, I guess we. Yeah, Who knows? Yeah, that's some morbid shit. But I mean, no, I'm I just hope, kidding. I'm just kidding. I hope you're twenty percent <laughs> of the way through your life. Yeah, no. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just know that no matter how perceivingly young I am, yeah. I'm at the point in my life right now that I'm ready to dedicate the rest of my life to this concept of. I believe that we're going to change society by taking responsibility as individuals and doing something on a local level and supporting solutions. We got to stop blaming the church. We got to stop blaming the government. And at this point, we got to stop blaming one another. And if we can start to work with one another to do something on a local level, that's how we're going if, if we have hundreds of thousands and millions of people that are focused on what am I doing right here in my own community, we're going to move the needle. Dude, we could change so much. Yeah. But in the past, that's not a sexy message. <laughs> in the present, that's not a sexy message. In the present, but I'll tell you right now, and I'm, you've heard it here first on this podcast, the future of charity is local. I 100% agree. The future of charity is local. If you can just shut out this, I, I think... We need to, there needs to be a healthy balance. We need to know what's going on in the world. But we have to know when to let that go. Things that we can never change. Because we're getting upset and we're getting bitter and we're getting so fucking worked up over things that we'll never be able to change when shit's happening within like 100 feet of our, where we're sitting right now, that we could actually change and we don't because we're worried about what's happening halfway across the world. Yeah. You know who I, when you look into your life and you consider who the world changers are, you know, and I look into my life and I consider who the world changers are, I think we just come full circle in this entire conversation and we say, it's the Todd Tardies. It's the Todds. And it's the people that are doing something on a local level. Um, I don't want to be a part of starting a movement. I don't even want to be involved in a movement. I don't want to be a part of one day events, conferences. I'm not interested anymore. I used to want to be a part of all sure. that. I'm looking at what I'm calling social sustainability. You have the word sustainability as this hot topic word that's being said by everybody. It's coming out of everybody's mouth. You have environmental sustainability. You have economical sustainability. And if you actually Google social sustainability, it says on the Wikipedia page, social sustainability is the least defined and the least talked about. Hmm. 
And I want to be one of the people that helps bring social sustainability to the forefront of society and make that popular. Social sustainability is people taking responsibility for the needs in their community consistently long-term. And if we do that, if we create models that are socially sustainable, then I think that we have the opportunity to solve some of these big issues. But it's not going to be done on a high level. Mm -hmm. It's not Mm -hmm. going to be done from the government. The government's not going to solve homelessness. We need the government. I believe that. Yeah. I'm not I'm not looking for a social revolution. We need the government. We need the government's participation. We need the church's involvement. We need business and corporate involvement. But it's going to have to be done on a local grassroots level. And so I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to that. And um Yeah. Amazing. There's so much more we could talk about, but I think it's a good time to call it quits tonight. Bob Dalton, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'll make sure that I push as many people as possible towards sackcloth and ashes to buy a blanket because they're fucking comfortable. And for every blanket you buy. <laughs> and I don't need a plug. And here, and and actually, I'm. We don't even need people buying blankets because they're on back order anyway. <laughs> amazing. That's an amazing <laughs> but, problem to have. Yeah, don't buy blankets. Yeah. No. <laughs> but um, you know, thanks for having me. Uh, I do think you're a great host. You know, I think um, you got a great voice to host, and I think that you have the right spirit and how you're approaching a lot of, you know, what you want to do and you know, having a lot of these conversations and, and a lot of these conversations that you're wanting to have are hard conversations to so have. hard. They're hard to have because when you're living in cancel culture as a leader, if you're not willing to speak out and at risk your platform to have these conversations, uh, which a lot of leaders are doing, they're not willing to have these conversations right. is they're being led out of fear. And I don't, I don't, sense that from you. I feel like you're not being making decisions or having these conversations based out of fear, but based out of the responsibility that these conversations need to be had. And I really respect that. Well, I think I, I appreciate you saying that. I think for one, I've got nothing to hide. Two, like we need, we need to have these hard conversations and people can see through, right? Again, like even if I made a mistake, it's something stupid. I've said lots of stupid shit in the, over the last four years on this podcast. Why am I still here, even in my small little platform? Because there's something about the spirit behind that horrible thing that I said or that messed up thing that I said that I apologized for. People can see through that. There's something about humility and integrity and the quickness to say sorry, not because I got caught, but because I really genuinely, I shouldn't have said that. And I'm so sorry that came out of my mouth and I'm learning. People can sense that. Like people are not stupid. People are really astute and they can sense like, oh, this is a fucked up person named Nick who really wants to do good versus fucked up Nick who 
is just trying to build his platform and just trying to build his his thing. You know what I'm saying? Like people can sense that. I we don't give people we don't give the listener enough credit sometimes. So I appreciate you saying that. And I I don't know in my Twitter bio the first thing that it says is I don't know what I'm doing. I think I'm gonna keep that in all of my bios forever because it's just true. Like people see the let's give a damn thing and they're like, Oh, it's so put together. It's so this. And then they see sackcloth and ash and like, Oh my God, this like international brand. And it's so cool. Right. We don't know what we're doing. Do we like, well, we don't know. I, I don't want to give, I, I don't want to discredit that. We're like just completely dumb people. hundred percent. And, and yeah. I want to say like what you're, well, I think what you're saying and what I want to affirm to anyone who wants to start an idea or do something is that my favorite artist that I actually learned um, about him from Parts Unknown is Ralph Steadman. And what Ralph Steadman would do is he would throw paint at a canvas mm. and he never knew what he was going to, to create. Yeah. He would throw paint. It would just evolve. Yeah. And he, after four splats, you know, he'd look at it and go, that's a horse. And he'd take a pencil and he would draw it out. And that's how I describe the entrepreneur journey, you know, or what we're doing or starting anything new. Like if you have a new idea and you want to do it, don't get discouraged because it's not necessarily turning out the way you originally thought. Allow the process to unfold and to and allow it to get to where it needs to be. And your number one goal and agenda, if you want it bad enough, is to not give up. Oh, fuck yeah. And that's what me, it is. I tell people this all the time. I'm like, I understand it's really hard. Believe me. I have invested six figures and then some into this business with very little return. I have to do all these things on the side to make this work. If you give up after hurdle 36... I mean, that's on you because you don't know if 37 was the magic. 37 was when it was going to take off or 101. We don't know. We're not privy to that universal information as to when our thing is going to finally begin working. And even when it's working, it's really not working, right? But it, things get a little easier. We don't know that information. But you can't give up. If you really believe this is part of who you are and your life's work, you give up and that's on you because something really you're you're depriving the world of whatever goodness you could have created because you just couldn't stick it out long enough. Yeah, I mean I feel like if you have the opportunity to do something or you're inspired to do something you have the opportunity to go and do it and then learn from what you've experienced like I've actually have just as many, if not more lessons in year one of Sackcloth and yes. Ashes. And it felt magical. And every single thing that we did felt crazy. There was a moment where Jordan was carrying a box of blankets up upstairs, uh, upstairs and with me to, uh, to this uh, event that we, I was speaking at to maybe 30 people, you know, and we were carrying these boxes of blankets up these stairs. And he looks at me and he goes, Hey, soon we're going to be unloading semis filled with blankets. And I swear to you, eight, nine months later, when we were unloading our first semi, 
I looked at them and I was like, holy shit, we just believe this into existence. Yeah. And I think that if you give up on whatever that idea is in your life, you don't get to experience that, you know? And I, it wasn't about us succeeding. It was like, because technically we're definitely weren't successful just right. because we were unloading a semi-full of blankets. It actually looked like we were smuggling cocaine from Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, it, but the whole point of it was just like, it was building something in us that like, I tell people even today that if sackcloth went away tomorrow, after seven years, I'll be fine. Because sackcloth gave me so much experience. Yeah. It gave me an unbelievable network. And I can go off and do amazing things. The only thing I would be sad about if sackcloth stopped tomorrow is for all the people I get to work with. You right. know, I don't know what they would do and I'm sure everybody will be fine, but that's what I live with. I don't look at sackcloth and ashes as like my baby, you know, as people describe your business or whatever, like it's your child or whatever. Like, no, I don't have that emotional connection to it. I'm thankful for the journey that it's been. And if it ends up being a different journey tomorrow or with the, or the same journey with a different name, then so be it. You know what I mean? I'm not, I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. You know, I set out, I was, I was more of an activist or somebody who wanted to make a difference in the world. And I happened to learn business, you know, and this whole journey has been a journey of lessons and that's it. You know, some of these ideas within sackcloth have worked and some of them haven't, but it doesn't matter the name of it. It's you putting yourself out there over and over and over again. You know, um, like it could be, let's give a damn and it could be named something else tomorrow. And it doesn't matter. It, it's not a failure of let's give a damn. It's, are you still going to move forward in the lessons that you learned and that are carrying on to something else? Yeah. You know? Um, so the goal is just to not give up, you know? It's a good way to end. Thanks, Bob. This was great. Yeah, man. That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending some time with Bob and me today. To learn more about Bob Dalton and Sackcloth and Ashes, visit sackclothandashes.com. And to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up. I'm so incredibly grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.